past two weeks, we have been studying a prayer that was written by the Apostle Paul that is found in Ephesians chapter 1. And this is a prayer that focuses on moving Christians from a position of living like spiritual paupers to a place of living out the fullness of what we have in Christ. This is a text, this is a passage, this is a prayer that is about helping believers experience spiritual maturity. And for that maturity to take place, Christians will need to walk through the natural progression of learning. And I have covered this over the past two weeks. That is, all learning follows the same progression. We move from ignorance to awareness, from awareness to practice, and from practice to proficiency. And every single one of those transitions is important for the learning process to actually take place. Now, in each of the two other weeks, I've not covered why that transition is so important, so I want to pull out that side of things tonight. And that is, the transition from ignorance to awareness is accomplished in any number of ways, but a lot of those happen because we are made aware of spiritual truth through things like reading the Bible, things like attending worship services and the Word of God is proclaimed and taught. Uh, we are made aware of spiritual truth by many times listening to podcasts or being in a Bible study or being with other Christian friends. And, and we find ourselves in a place of we went from ignorance of truth, we didn't even know it was there, to now all of a sudden because of those moments, there is now awareness of that truth. That is an important transition that we all have to take. Then there is the transition from awareness to practice. And that occurs because God wants to live out what it is that he is putting in. So we find ourselves in a place of studying the word of God and we find truth related to marriage and forgiveness and faith and love and mission and marriage and work and stewardship and serving and all of these other wonderful contexts. And then God has this crazy plan of putting us in situation after situation where now the issue is, will you live out the very truth you amen yesterday? And you find yourself in a place of like, all right, I'll give it a try. And we start to practice. We get a chance to practice truth in real time. And praise God, we have a God who is gracious and a God who is loving and a God who allows us to be able to work through those things. And according to what we find in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We get a chance to work it out, not trying to gain God's acceptance and his approval, but because we already have that in Christ, we get a chance to work those things out in freedom, work them out in relationship with God. So then we have another transition. That is from practice to proficiency. And that is the result of continually submitting to the Holy Spirit's promptings to live through us. Now, this one truth... If we get this one piece, it'll save us a lot of headaches, a lot of confusion, and a lot of time. See, here, if you get nothing else from tonight, get this one piece. Practice does not make perfect if you practice wrong. <laughs> you get what I mean? Doing the wrong thing again and again and again does not lead to proficiency. So it has been said that some people can work 20 years and they gain 20 years of experience. Other people can work 20 years and they gain one year of experience 20 times. 
And basically, the idea behind that is a person's experience, their activity, their effort does not guarantee expertise in a particular area. Continually doing the wrong thing over and over and over does not lead to growing in the right way. So this is a part where Christians get unbelievably frustrated. That is, we hear biblical truth, we read biblical truth, we want to act upon biblical truth. And by the way, if you read the Bible long enough, you will find God wants you to act on these things. That is, when God says things like, love your enemy, guess what he wants you to do? There it is. He wants you to love your enemy. Now, let's just be honest. It's hard to love people we like sometimes, much less our enemy. That's going to take some practice for us to be able to work those certain things out. So here's what happens. Christians will read about those things, and we're like, I want to do that. And there's an honest part. We, we want to walk in obedience and walk in faithfulness. So here's what it is. We try and then we fail. And then we get up the next day and we try and we fail. And then next, next month we try and then we fail. And every time we keep going through this cycle, we get more frustrated with the process. And we also get frustrated with God because we don't think God is helping us do the very thing he's commanding us to do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever walked through that cycle before? So practice in our own strength never leads to proficiency. This third transition is all about continually submitting to the Holy Spirit, the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit might live through us. So today, as we finish the final part of the Apostle Paul's prayers, I'm addressing people who have struggled with those cycles of defeat. If you have ever wondered, what am I supposed to do to get beyond this point? What can I do to move beyond this spiritual plateau? Why is it that I keep running through the same cycles again and again? If you've ever wondered what it looks like to go further in your spiritual walk and for God to be the one to do that, I want you to pay close attention tonight because that's exactly what we're going to be getting into. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles or also follow along on the screen. We're going to be over in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 1, and we will be in verses 15 through 23. Tonight is part 3 of the message. This is the final part of the message of praying for proficiency. Here's what the text says, starting in verse number 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exist among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you of my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Tonight, may we see the importance of your power in the process of spiritual maturity. God, help us to have an awareness this evening of exactly what it looks like for you to live your life through us. In Jesus' name, amen. So studying Ephesians 1 is like building a house. And that is, if you skip any of the steps, the structure is going to be shaky. So the only way we are prepared for what we're going to encounter tonight in verses 19 through 23 is because we've already seen the contents of our spiritual account in Christ. We also understand that our access of that account only comes by abiding in Christ. And we also recognize God's continual call to spiritual maturity and the lives of his children. It is that information that now provides the structure for what we're going to encounter this evening. In verse number 19, Paul's prayer is that the eyes of our heart would be open that we may, here it is, see the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Apart from the preceding sections that we've already covered, this request seems nice, but maybe not necessary. It almost sounds as though the Apostle Paul is just wanting us to focus on the power of God. Now, how many of you know that God is powerful? Let me see your hands. Okay, that's not new information for us. We recognize that the Bible tells us that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything he desires. That's not the question. The issue is we have to remember he's talking about our eyes being open to the greatness of his power in the context of spiritual maturity. That's what he wants us to see. How is God's great power necessary in my life and in your life for us to mature within the faith? So Paul's point in this is that we have this incredible spiritual bank account in Christ. We have unlimited supply. We have unlimited access. We, we are constantly called to abide in Christ. And God wants to live his life through us. We recognize that. He wants our lives to be a showcase for his glory. That's what we talked about this last week. He wants to live out what it is that he has now put in. And our natural inclination when challenged with doing this and walking in maturity is usually one of two things. We either say, I accept the challenge, and I'm going to make it happen. Or we say, I hear the challenge, but I could never do that. If we approach the truths of chapter 1 with the mentality, I accept the challenge, and I will make it happen, we are doomed for failure from the very beginning. We recognize that spiritual maturity is never achieved by relying on self. It is achieved by, listen to this, relying on the surpassing greatness of his power to those who believe. Now, if we approach the truths of chapter 1 with the mentality, I hear the challenge, but I could never do that, then we will never grow spiritually. We will stay the same because we're unwilling to engage the process we stay in a spiritually immature state, but the entire challenge of this is to go further, to keep walking with Jesus, to keep seeing more and more spiritual maturity take place. The proper Christian response should be, I accept the challenge to spiritual maturity, but I am trusting in God alone that he is going to be the one to make this happen. 
So there are now four parts of Paul's prayer that he is setting up. We've already covered three of these parts. He has prayed that we would know God fully, verse 17, that we would know the hope of his calling, verse 18, that we would know the riches of his glory, of his inheritance, verse 18, and then tonight, that we might know the greatness of his power toward us. This is found in verses 19 through 23. Now, I want you to hear this bold, audacious, seemingly ridiculous claim that I'm about to make based on what we find in this text. If we know how to live out the final part of this prayer, if we actually know how to live recognizing the greatness of God's power that he is doing in and through us what we cannot do for ourselves, listen to what would happen. That is the key to breaking addictions. It's the key to personal growth. It is the key to kingdom activity. It is the key to not burning out in ministry. It is the key to moving past spiritual plateaus. It is the key to reflecting God's glory in a way he desires. It is the key in changing culture. It is the key in seeing people come to know Christ and be fully discipled in Christ. All of that is hinging upon us recognizing the power of God. Here's a basic statement. God's work requires God's power. If you get nothing else from tonight, walk away with that. God's work requires God's power. Now, somebody might say, Paul, I I get what you're saying. It kind of makes sense. That last statement, that's catchy. It's small enough. I can remember that. God's work requires God's power. I get that. But there's things I'm just dealing with myself. Like, this is a journey. This is something that I've been dealing with, and it's personal to me, and I'm trying to work it out, and you just, you're going to have to just give me some time. i got to work this stuff out myself. Listen to this. If you're a child of God, it is no longer a personal issue for you. The reason I say that is because the moment you entered relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's no longer your life. It's his It says, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When Jesus redeemed you, he bought you lock, stock, and barrel. And he told us up front what it is that he was going to do. According to Romans 8, 29, the goal is that we are conformed into the image of his son. In other words, his process is going to take us from being lost in rebellion against God completely unaware of spiritual truth and he is going to walk us through a process where we are saved and we're growing in sanctification and we're living out spiritual truth in a way in which it is proficient and our character is conformed into the character in the image of Christ that's the process that he's about to take us through he is going to be in a process of taking out everything in our lives that needs to be removed and instilling in our lives everything we need to gain and polishing up in our lives everything he desires to perfect in us so that on the other side of this journey, our character is transformed into the image and the character of Christ. But listen, he who began a good work in you is going to be the one to complete it. It started with him. It's going to be completed with him. And by the way, What was it that he did in you? It's the work in you. God's work requires God's power. 
So God's work is not only seen in his people, transforming our character into the character of Christ, but God's work is also seen through his people, and that is making disciples who know Christ and make him known. God wants to use his people in order to share the message of Christ, to share the love of Christ, to, to get the gospel to the nations. He wants to use his people to do that, but the issue is many times we get ourselves right back into the same thing corporately that we do individually. And that is we try to work it out ourselves in sanctification personally, and then we try human-centered efforts in order to carry out the work of God around the world. And it's also going to lead to the same place, frustration and failure every single time. Now, don't get me wrong on this. I am not against work. I love work. I get excited about work. I get up early in the morning because I'm so excited about work. I am not against work work. I am against human-fueled efforts to accomplish God-directed tasks. The church has relied so heavily upon our own ability in order to accomplish the work of God that we now equate rehearsed outlines with effective evangelism, busyness with vital ministry, and car washes with cultural change. We have made it so much about our own effort that we don't know how to operate in the power of God. We get nervous when we get to talking about the power of God. Well, what will that look like? How will things change? Right now, if God were to so descend upon this place in might and in power and disrupt the way we do things, how many Christians would say, I'm okay without that? Because we like our, our things normal. We like to know what's going down. We like our routines. We like to plan it out sometimes. But the issue with that is if you're going to be walking with God, sometimes God's going to shake it up. Sometimes he's going to say, you're not going to plan what's going on right now. This is going to be a part of his activity in our lives. Now listen, I'm not teaching passivity. I'm teaching source. If you disconnect the source, you diminish the power. If we're talking about God's work being done by God's power, if we're disconnecting that from God, then all we're left with is our ability. We can never achieve God's work through our ability. That's why he's praying that believers will see the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, this is a truth that is so profound in Paul's mind that he uses four different Greek words in order to describe this strength, this work, this might that is happening. All of these are found in verse number 19. So I'm going to reference the word power, working, strength, might. Power, working, strength, might. This first word, it, it's dunamis. It is God's unlimited power that is available to Christians. The next word, working, that is energia. It's the energizing force of the Spirit that empowers believers to do as God desires. Then there is the word for strength, that is kratos. It is strength that is necessary to overcome whatever obstacle stands in the way. And then there is might or iskus. This is strength which one has that is latent 
power. It is endowed power. It is innate ability. Now put those pieces together. Paul wants Christians to know that spiritual maturity is possible because of God's unlimited power that is available to those who believe. This is a power that is not released by our effort, but rather it is released by the Holy Spirit. The problems that we face are not hindrances to God's work because he has power to overcome every obstacle that stands in the way. And there's no need to worry about whether or not there'll be enough strength and enough power and enough ability down the road because this is power that is innate within God himself. It is unlimited in its source and supply. So let's process that out in real life. What obstacles are you facing right now that you feel like are in the way of your spiritual growth? Paul would say, I pray that you will see the surpassing greatness of his power to those who believe. What excuse are you giving right now for why it is that you cannot mature past the place that you're at today? He would say, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be open, that you will see the surpassing greatness of his power. What limit have you put on God by saying, this could never happen in my life because of blank, because of my past, because of my knowledge, because of my inability, because this has been an entrenched sin, because of the people that I am around, because of what, what are we putting in that that section is say, here's why I can no longer grow spiritually because of this. According to what Paul's saying, everything you need to overcome that is already available to those who recognize the greatness of his power to those who believe. So it's hard for me to get my mind around how all these pieces are lived out, not only in my life, but also in other people's lives. But as I was thinking about this particular section, I started to think about the life of the Apostle Paul. I just started to think, here, here's the guy who was writing this. And I started to think back on how it is that God used him. Now, let's be honest, God used that man in a huge way. The Apostle Paul is only one of two biblical figures who is said to get to the end of their life and is able to say that they finished the race that was set before them. One of those is the Apostle Paul, the other is Jesus. That's solid company to be in. And I started to think about the impact of his life. And if you don't know much about the Apostle Paul, let me give you the snippets on that. God used him to write 13 of the 27 books of our New Testament. His writings provide the most complete teaching the world has ever seen on what it looks like to walk in grace and be free from the law. He was given the task of taking the gospel to the Gentile world. God used him to plant churches in Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Colossae and other areas. This is the man who stood before kings and governors. He's credited with taking the gospel to Europe. He personally discipled many of the early church leaders who also led the early church. He, his trials, his afflictions have been used by God to encourage hundreds of millions of people over the last 2,000 years to walk faithfully with God and keep going despite the obstacles they're facing. Like, God greatly used this man. And my question became, 
How does one person make that big a difference? And here's the thing that hit me as I was studying this text. He's been given us the secret through all of his writings. And the secret is what we're discussing tonight. God's work requires God's power. Knowing that, listen to these references and please write them off to the side. Colossians 1.19. Paul said he was successful in proclaiming Christ and admonishing people and presenting disciples who are complete in Christ because he was, quote, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. He, he gave the credit to the power of God that is working through him. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5, Paul tells us how afraid he was and how deficient he felt whenever he was preaching in Corinth. But he says, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. He said, not only did I rely on the power of God, but he said, I don't want your faith to rest in a person. Oh, listen, how many people have been shipwrecked in their walk because their faith was resting in a person other than Jesus Christ? He's saying here, I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling because I didn't have persuasive words of men's wisdom, but I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. He's been saying this all along. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He told us that he prayed three times that God would remove this issue from his life. And three times God chose to teach him a powerful lesson. Here's what God taught him. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And then in the next verse it says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. Pause. How many of you want to be weak to experience his power? Or let me talk about it from the other perspective. How many of us try to make people think we're strong? And in doing so, we literally are removing ourselves from the position of God's power being demonstrated through us. He said, most gladly, therefore, well, I boast in my weaknesses. The power of Christ may rest upon me. Later in Ephesians 3.20, Paul encourages believers that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly be all, the, all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's work requires God's power. Now, moving from operating in our strength to relying upon God's power may be one of the hardest, most unnatural, most difficult parts of the Christian experience, without a question. I, I cannot tell you how many times when I've taught about the Christ life, the question comes up to me after a service, or a question comes back through an email or through a message in social media, and somebody will say the same thing over and over. I hear what you're saying, but how do I get out of God's way for his power to work in my life? I don't know how to stop trying to do it myself. What does it look like for God to be the one to live his life through us? Well, sometimes it is hard to find an illustration of any kind 
that creates a visual for a truth like that. But then there's this one that God brought to mind that hopefully will make sense. If it doesn't, just smile and act like it makes sense to you. All right, so over the last 24 years as a pastor, I have found myself in a lot of hospital rooms. Now, I I just need to pause here and say this. In case you didn't know it, there are some pastors who are really, really good in a hospital room. They walk into that room, and there's a calmness about them, a care about them. They, they, they bring comfort to those who are there. They have a gift for being able to love people well in the moment. I praise God for those pastors. I'm just not one of them. I'm going to be honest. Hospitals make me queasy. They do. Now, I've been in a lot of hospitals over the course of my life, and there's something about the smell. The moment I walk in, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so I walk in sometimes almost like a nervous wreck. I might be the only pastor who ever walks into your hospital room and asks if I could also use your oxygen with you. <laughs> I'm like, it's good to see you today. I've been praying for you, brother. I just think you should know that. So because of the fact people know that, that hospitals sometimes make my stomach queasy, when they see me show up in a hospital, they're like, is it that bad, pastor? <laughs> like the doctor hasn't told me anything yet. So anyway, I just need you to know, hospital people, the, the people who can walk in and there's a calmness about them, oh, what a gift to the body of Christ. So I'll tell you, over the years of being in hospitals, I've been in on a couple of times when somebody's had a major surgery and they are waking up, the sedation is wearing off, and they find that they're on a ventilator and they don't know it. And here's what you'll find. Every single time, they fight against it. Every time, there's a panic that goes off in this person and bells are going off and lights are flashing and and every single time, nurses and people come in and they'll say the same thing. Don't fight against it, just relax. Let the machine do the work. And if they can calm that person down, then the bells and the whistles and the lights start to die down. Now take that idea back into your spiritual walk. When a person comes to faith in Christ, we wake up to this brand new life in Christ. And this life is different than anything we've ever experienced. This is a life that is not being lived through our ability, through our effort. This is one that God himself is wanting to live it through us. So with this person, when we wake up to this new life in Christ, we find ourselves many times panicking Because we're trying to do things ourselves. We are literally pushing back against the very system that God has designed in order to help bring about spiritual wealth and goodness within our lives. And if there were to be something that I feel like God would say to his people over and over again, it would be, don't fight against me. Just relax. Let the spirit do his work. If you trust me, I'll live this through you. And that is one of the most unnatural things for us to walk through. It's hard because every other part of our life has been measured by what you and I can do to make something happen. The Christian life is not about us trying harder. 
It's about us trusting more. Now, if you're saying, but Paul, I don't know whether or not I've got the ability to trust that God is going to be the one to do this. Like, I don't know what that looks like. The Apostle Paul recognized the same thing. So in this, he reminds us of Jesus' power in every type of realm around us. And that's where the whole rest of the passage goes. Jesus has power over death. Look in verse 20. When he raised him from the dead, there is power in position and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The, The right hand was the position of authority and power. There's power over angels, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He has power over people and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is power over all things. He puts all things in subjection under his feet. There is power over his people and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, he has power over every part of this it's not that we need to add our effort to his power we need to recognize his power and submit ourselves before him God's work requires God's power God is at work in the hearts of his people and our ability to experience that in its fullness is going to depend on whether or not we are willing to submit to God And trust him to live in and through us what we could never live for ourselves. So here's my really strange question as we close out this prayer. Will Paul's prayer be fulfilled in your life? Will his prayer be fulfilled in your life? His prayer is that we would know God fully. Will that prayer be fulfilled in your life? His prayer is that we would know the hope of his calling. Will that part of his prayer be fulfilled in your life? His prayer is that we would know the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints. Will the the prayer of the Apostle Paul in that area be fulfilled? His prayer is that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. Will that part of his prayer be fulfilled in your life? So I'm going to give you a challenge. Pray that prayer for one month and find out what God does. Go before God and say, God, help me to know you. Help me to know the hope of your calling. Help me to understand and to know the riches of your glory in your inheritance. God, would you help me to know the greatness of your power to those who believe? God, if you don't do that, there's nothing that I can bring that's going to help in this. God, would you do that? If you pray that for a month and you are submitted to him, it'll be amazing what God will do in your life. Now, you might say, Paul... I don't know if I'm still convinced about this. I I, I don't know if if that makes sense to me. And I get that. I recognize that all of what I'm describing seems to be completely unnatural from a human perspective. To trust anyone to do what we're talking about here, it's just an unnatural thing. But I want you to know, not only... Has that been what is written in Scripture? Not only is that in the inspired word, 
But over the years, there have been Christian authors who have taken those concepts and tried to help people understand them deeply. This is one of the books in my life, The Complete Green Letters by Miles Stanford. I first came into contact with this book probably 20 years ago. And this is one of those that it felt like he was reading my journal entries. But what I found is he began to pull apart some of the most profound, deep truths of the Christian life and do them in a way that you just got to sit with the truths for a while because if you don't, they will blow your mind away. So what I found is in reading it one time, I actually read it about eight times because I would start it and I would read like four chapters and it would get so good. I was like, oh my goodness, now I understand what he was saying in chapter one. And I'd go back to chapter one and I would start. And then I'd get to about chapter seven and I'd be like, oh wow, that's good. Then I'd go back to chapter one and I'd start. And I'd go to maybe chapter 10, 12, whatever that might be. This is one of those books that God has used in a huge way in my life. I want you to listen to the way he describes some of this. He's got a section here in chapter two that is about time. It's about spiritual maturity. And here's what he says. It seems that most believers have difficulty in realizing and facing up to the inexorable fact that God does not hurry in his development of our Christian life. He is working from and for eternity. That one piece alone is enough to just sit there and say, Lord, what am I trying to rush right now in this Christian journey. He goes on and he says, it is God's way to set people aside after their first start that self-confidence may die down. Thus Moses was 40 years. On his first start, he had to run away. Paul was three years also after his first testimony. Not that God did not approve of the first earnest testimony. We must get to know ourselves and that we have no strength. Thus we must learn, and then leaning on the Lord, we can with more maturity and more experientially deal with souls. He's basically saying, God has a way of right after a person comes to Christ and they're excited and they're moving and shaking and they're seeing things happen, that he goes and he sets them down. And he's like, I I need your self-confidence to die down because this is going to be a journey that's all about me. And you begin to look at the saints of God that he set down. It's incredible. So here's this one. This this is one rock my world. In the same chapter, he said, we might consider some familiar names of believers whom God obviously brought to maturity and used for his glory. Such name is Pearson and Chapman and Taller and Moody and Goforth and Mueller and Taylor and Watt and Trumbull and Meyer and Murray, and he gives a whole list. I won't go through all of those. But then here's what he said. The average for these was 15 years after they entered their life's work. Before they began to know the Lord Jesus as their life and ceased trying to work for him, it began allowing him to be their all in all and to do his work through them. Did you get that? He said, on average, it was 15 years in their life's work before they finally got to a place that they recognized it's not about them doing something for God. It's about them resting in him 
and letting him do the work through them. I got more. (laughs) Here's another section. He said our personal heartbreaking failure in every phase of our Christian life is our father's preparation for success on our behalf. Did you get that? Every time you you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you're frustrated and you're mad and you're upset. He says, listen again, every personal heartbreaking failure in our life is our father's preparation for his success on our behalf. Do you know what he's saying? He's like, he has to let us keep banging our head against the wall and failing before we finally stop and we give up And now he says, now let me show you what success looks like when I live it through you. And when he does it, here it is. When he does it, there's freedom. There's freedom. I got more. It says the effortless life is not the willless life. We use our will to believe, to receive, but not exert effort in trying to accomplish what only God can do. Our hope for victory over sin is not Christ plus my efforts, but Christ plus my receiving. (laughs) Y'all can't handle no more of that tonight. (laughs) He's throwing truth bombs here. He's saying it's not that you're adding something to the power of God. He's saying the way that you experience maturity is Christ and Christ alone. It is receiving what he's already given. It's resting in him. It's trusting in him. It's not trying more. It's trusting in a deeper way. And when we do that, that's where freedom is. That's where maturity takes place. That's how we cannot take the credit for what God does in our life. That's the way that all glory goes to him. That's the way that the fueling the mission of God it's all because of him I can't handle it listen I can't handle it when God began to show me those truths and using books like that that was here it is I moved from ignorance to awareness I didn't even know what that looked like until they began to describe it I knew the effects of it in my life And then all of a sudden I read it and I was like, that's my life. I'm not going crazy. Do you know one of the greatest discoveries in your Christian life is to find out you're not the only one who's going through it? And when you realize other people have been there and God gave them the ability to write out what that process was, how those truths sink in. And all of a sudden you're like, thank you, God. I'm not going crazy. This is your path your journey for your people. If we are praying that God would move us towards spiritual maturity, praying for proficiency, it's going to require that we stop relying on our own strength and effort and we rest completely upon the strength and the power of God. That's good night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Oh, God, may those truths sink in. Lord, I pray that these truths would captivate your people. I pray, God, that when they begin to sink in, Lord, wake us up in the middle of the night. Stop us 
throughout our day, help us to see those areas that we are relying on our own ability and our own strength and not relying on you. And God, may you do the work. Lord, help us to know what that looks like for you and you alone to be the one fueling and strengthening and empowering the journey. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.